Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we're kicking off a new series. It has been 40 years since these movies were released because we're in a new year. Yeah, it's um our Oscar season. So we've got to do a new round of Oscar films. So David, what are we doing this year for Oscars? We are doing the 55th Academy Awards for films from the year 1982. Yeah, we've just really enjoyed these last two rounds where we watch films from a particular year. Uh, that just seems to be a really fun way to go about catching up on some movies we needed to see. So we're doing it again. There's a ton of movies for this year that we've actually already watched. Mm-hmm. Some of which are going to get mentioned in this Oscar series. You've got movies like An Officer and a Gentleman. Mm-hmm. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Rocky Three. Classic love, Rocky. How about Blade Runner? Oh, yeah, that was like number two. <laughs> An OG one. One we haven't talked about on here, but also is very well known. Tron came out in 1982. Yep, seen that. Groundbreaking. And, of course, just from our musical series, Victor Victoria. Yeah, so we actually had a pretty good slate on this one before we even started. So we've already discussed several movies that are going to be featured in this awards ceremony. This is an interesting slate of movies. It's a weird year. That's a weird year, but a, a cool year. And one of the things we've done this year to try to vary things up is that we are going in release order. Yes, that helps gives a little bit more context for the films themselves. One of the things that we know just for being like crazy Oscar fans is that the most films that are big Oscar buzz come out between October and December. Especially now. I don't know how true that is for 82, but. Yeah, so this is this is going to be really interesting. And the other thing about this year, 2022 is that these Oscars, these movies from 2021, it's a weird smattering of films. Because of a, a glut, because of a giant backlog of movies. Yeah. And then also a truncated eligibility timeline. Yeah. So I feel like it's going to mirror that a little bit. You know, of course, it's too early for nominations for 2022, but it's going to be it's going to be interesting. And we are going to start with, of all things, a submarine movie. Today we watched Das Boot. The claustrophobic world of a World War II German U-boat. Boredom, filth, and sheer terror. What a fucking movie. You were dead set on that you're going to hate this. This is going to be awful. You're going to hate it. I was worried because every time I told you, and we should probably watch this movie at some point, and you're like, uh, mm -mm, I don't care. I don't want to watch this movie. I Okay. I have a long-standing reputation of saying I don't like war films. In general, yeah. General, I don't I don't care about films that are just about we're going to war and we're going to blow things up. No, that's why I watch action films where we murder people for fun. Okay? Most war films aren't that, but okay. That's not been my experience. I understand. I understand. But my experience has been between the blowing things up, it's just War, 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 war talk. And it's boring and it's slow. So if you if you ever categorize something as a war film, I'm more, that's my first inclination. Just to be like, whatever. Mm -hmm. However, 
we've seen some really great films that take place during war that aren't solely about the war as a whole. Yeah. Or the politics of the war. The best war movies are like that. True. I agree. Like Dunkirk. Amazing. Like, yes, it's mostly about the war, but it's about all these weird things that had to happen at this one time. Things like that. And then, you know, things we've watched for the show, Bridge Over the River Kwai, which we both love. Loved. And uh, even 1917. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, it takes place in war and it is about the war, but it's more about like, this is your mission. Like, this is like the human drive to get this thing done. Like, that's what's compelling. And I understand that many people enjoy war films because they see that in it. But when that's not what's telegraphed to me within your film, that's not what I feel. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. Like, so I'm not shitting on war movies. I'm not shitting on people who like war movies. This is how I feel about war movies. This movie, though, is awesome. 1000% the human element. Agreed. It's even more complicated by the fact that our heroes are fighting for the Nazis. Oh, yeah. This, I, if, you, if you don't know about Das Boot, just to give you the quick background, mm -hmm. it's based on a German novel written by a person who, during the war, was a war correspondent. And he took his experience having served on a German U-boat and transformed it into an anti-war novel. Because it was so terrifying dealing with all of that and seeing the havoc that wreaked on all of the men who had to go fight that war on behalf of a madman. Yeah. So this is somehow an adaptation of that, <laughs> which you're already asking a tough sell for a German audience. Yeah. Let alone an American audience. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Unless you are a war film fanatic, that's a tough sell. And yet, it holds up tremendously. Oh, yeah. It's great. There are a few movies like this one. I remember watching it a long time ago because I have seen this before. And I remember, one, I am a little bit of a war movie fan. More of, like, I, I, again... There are some war movies that are just so boring because they're just long and we're just recounting one single battle and it's stupid. But I do love a good war movie where you're talking about a human element. Mm -hmm. That's what really grabs me in a war movie where you're focusing on characters and you're dealing with the characters behind this moment. Sometimes it's realistic and sometimes, you know, it's fictionalized, but it's all about the people behind this one moment in time. Mm -hmm. And... I distinctly remember both like loving it because submarine movies are cool as shit to me. I do okay. enjoy a good sub movie. It's the whole, you're confined. How does that mess with your mind? How does that mess with you physically? Y you know, how do you deal with that? Mm -hmm. But then the human element got me. And, the, and I, yeah. I remember leaving just sort of like, whoa, I didn't know you could do this with a movie. But watching it now with even more context and life experience... I am still amazed at how well this movie is able to thread that line mm -hmm. between humanizing people without ever making you feel like they're necessarily good guys. Yeah. The thing is, it, this film really doesn't deal with the fact that they're working for the Germans and you could have substituted any 
country, swapped them around, done whatever. And it wouldn't have mattered. It truly doesn't. Not to the overall story, no. Correct. It doesn't. And that's to its credit that the story that they're telling is compelling, that it really has nothing to do with what side you're on. It's what happened in this boat. Yeah. And I think even more, you're able to overcome that meta narrative that's over it. Sure. Like if you're able to overcome that big, giant rhinoceros in the room, that's impressive. Yeah. Well, there's also, let's remember for Diana, Diana knows nothing about history. She remembers mm-hmm. nothing about history. So I had a lot of questions. I'm really glad I never saw this in like theater because I asked David questions the entire movie. Because there's something I just don't know about submarines. Like, I've been on a submarine. Like, it's cool. It's small. That sucks for a tall person. But in terms of, like, how certain things work, it's like, what exactly are they talking about? Like, war strategy? Like, huh? I just don't know. So I had a lot of questions. So I will say that this film doesn't fill in some blanks that for a person like me needs. It doesn't, and I think we're we're going to talk about the different versions of this. Mm-hmm. Movie. The version that we're watching does require, I don't know that it requires subtext to enjoy it, but I think if you're going to understand the full weight and gravity uh-huh. of what they're going through, understanding what the mission and, and what they're doing on that boat is helpful. See, that's what I thought they were going to do with the reporter, but... Then it wasn't until later when someone refers to him as lieutenant that I'm like, oh, he's in the military, but his assignment is to do this. Yeah, he's a war correspondent. He's a propaganda maker. That's all he's there to do. And I get that, but I feel like that shouldn't have been our way into this boat. It should have been someone who, this is my first assignment. This is my first time being on a boat. So that those moments where someone can explain to that character what's happening what they're doing i mean there's also there there is a level because this is a german language film there's a level of subtitle fatigue i think they do that relatively often in the story however this movie's very very quiet (laughs) so it's very easy to miss those moments it's very quiet and then very 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 fast and loud yeah that's the whole movie that's not like me shitting on the movie at all um it's just for me, and this goes right <laughs> into some writing stuff, like that's something that I feel is missed. So the budget for this film was $15 million. That equates to 32 million Deutschmarks. At the time, it was the most expensive German film ever made. Okay. And it might still be the most expensive solely German production The only film to beat it eventually was the 2006 film Perfume, The Story of a Murderer. Oh, God. That was a German-French-Spanish Mm co-production, so it's hard to know whether, like, solely the German funding for that would have gone any higher. Also, Perfume is a five-star movie. It's fantastic. You should all go watch it. Diana does not agree. (laughs) That's a film I almost walked out of when we saw it in the theater. That's, That's a genius film, and I don't know what you're talking about. Anyway, <laughs> no. <laughs> now that's a lot of money. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a sh- that's a shit ton of money for a 1982 movie. Mm-hmm. It made globally eighty four million nine hundred thousand dollars. Ow! Interestingly enough, 
the German language version grossed higher than the English language dub at the U.S. box office. It was that popular a movie in America. That is interesting. It did amazing. Again, the human element of this story resonates so much to moviegoers. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it crossed the Atlantic outside of Germany and was popular in places that hated the Germans. Yeah. It speaks to the incredible nature of the storytelling of this movie. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it's just a really fucking rad war movie at the same time. It's great. Some of those action sequences are like, I'm looking at it going, I don't think I've seen people do that now and make it look that good. Like the only time where it's a little laughable is when we do close-ups of the bridge. Yeah, that's when you just like, you know, you feel the green screen. It's a little aged, but man. The wide shots look great. And everything inside that sub. Well, we'll talk about how they pulled that off, but it's awesome to watch. The bulk of the 15 million went to constructing the realistic U-boats. They got actual specifications for the original Type 7C U-boats that were located at the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry. They took those original plans to the original builder of the U-boats and commissioned full-sized seaworthy replicas so one was the interior set which is what we see them filming through the other was a hollow shell with an engine and they could only use that in calm waters at one point they tried to film in rougher weather and it cracked in two and sank if you're looking carefully you can actually see cracks starting to form when the crew sings it's a long way from tipperary the first time Mm, okay They did recover it. They patched it with wood, just like they did in the movie. And they wound up completing shots with that that original replica. Hmm. They attempted to use a smaller submarine for exterior scenes that was steered by a diver. But the diver quit three days into filming, saying he was experiencing seasickness for the first time in almost 20 years of diving. (laughs) So eventually they made that model remote controlled. And Mm -hmm. in order to use that model as they went into port, they put Ken dolls on the sub to represent people Hmm. for big wide shots. Modified Ken dolls, I should say. Sure. That worked. It was the first such warship assignment for the builder since World War II. Wow. The models were so good, Steven Spielberg decided he wanted to use them for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm -hmm. He's like, I can't beat that. And I believe there are pictures, if you go to Bavaria Film Studios where this was made um, or where this was funded, you can actually go inside the set. They still have the U-boat set Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. So the money for this movie went directly into the accuracy. That is one of the biggest things about this movie is its accuracy. Mm. Okay. They wanted you to feel like you were in a U-boat. I mean, mean, that definitely is an element to the film. I don't think they had to go quite as cramped as they did, but it's great. I don't think they had to, but I also think that it wouldn't be the movie it is. Sure. If it didn't have that element to it. Yeah. Today, it could be a little different. And some of it is, you know, the technology changed. We What we see in submarine movies now 
and we haven't seen any in a while, but you've got the nuclear type submarines where you've got a lot bigger bridge and there's a lot more room. It's still very cramped, but it's not nearly as cramped as it used to be. Mm -hmm. I think part of it is like, if you're going to be on a U-boat, you also need to reflect the fact that you're, you're basically in a giant fucking torpedo tube. You're not in anything <laughs> that resembles like a normal environment to be sailing in. <laughs> yeah. Without really torturing the actors, because they, they didn't really do that. They didn't like film continuously on set or anything like that. They took efforts to try to make it look right, mm -hmm. but they didn't, you know, force them to be on this cramped sub constantly. They wanted you to feel that sheer horror and just awfulness of being that cramped in that space for so long. <laughs> now to talk a, a moment about the version of the film we are watching. I wanted to do the original theatrical cut because I wanted to give us the chance to watch what would have come out in 1982. However, it was not available. Nope. I could not find it easily. It used to apparently be on Netflix. It's not anymore. So, damn. So, we are watching the director's cut. And to give you a little background on how this all came together, originally, it was a two and a half hour movie. And it solely focused on action sequences. We get very little of the character development. We've got a lot of the isolation and the cramped and the terror of it, but mm -hmm. we don't have a lot of those character pieces that we have peppered throughout the version that we watched. Now, because it was partially financed by German television, they filmed way more than they actually put into the theatrical cut. They were like, look, we think we've got something here. We're going to market it for international audiences, so we're going to really tighten it into a real action film. But they made a German miniseries that they released in 1985 that mm. was in three parts, and it clocked in at around five hours. That version contains a whole bunch of character development sequences. Hmm. They extend those sequences out. It hews a lot closer to the novel with all of that background. Okay. From that, in 1997, Wolfgang Peterson, our director, was brought in to supervise a director's cut. He took those character sequences, tightened them up where they didn't need to be so long and fleshed out so that you could actually sit in a theater and watch it and not feel too bad. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's truncating some of that where you don't need to go super in-depth with it, and he's trying to make those cuts go together, and that's the version that we're watching. We're basically watching a theatrical cut of the miniseries okay. more than anything. Interesting. I think if you watch the miniseries, you probably get a lot more of that exposition that you're talking about. Okay. And I will say, all of these versions are available. They have like a five-disc full remastered version of everything. You can watch the theatrical and the other one and the miniseries as well. Like They have all of it available to watch now. Mm -hmm. The other big thing that the director's cut did was they updated the sound. They brought in all new sound effects. They did Dolby 5.1 surround. Like, they completely updated the sound of the film, mm -hmm. which was a huge deal for it. I mean, the sound's incredible now because, like I said, it's such a dynamic film that it needs to be real, real quiet. And you need to hear all the creaking and all the sonar pings and all the little sounds around you so that when the explosions start it does hit you like a ton of bricks it's real important to the movie so this is an undertaking of a movie it's a big fucking deal and we need to talk about the writing yep it is based off of a novel by lothar g buchheim 
It's based off of his time as a war correspondent in the German Navy's propaganda office. He was basically Lieutenant Werner. Uh, he joined the crew of the U-96 and described the action in the submarine through the Atlantic. Captain Lieutenant Lehman Villenbrock, our captain for this film, was seventh among skippers in tonnage of shipping sunk during the war. And he was on one trip with another captain on that boat while he wrote about this. Should say here that the U-boat's main mission was mm -hmm. targeting shipping containers for the Allies. What they were basically doing was patrolling the waters of the Atlantic and trying to prevent war supplies from getting from place to place. Hmm. So that's what their whole thing was. They really didn't go after the destroyers or anything because the hull was so thick. They were like, we can't, the U-boats couldn't fight back against that massive firepower, but they could knock out their supply chain. And that's what they were really trying to do. Yeah. Unlike the actual story that we see, the U-96 was one of the few subs that survived World War II. Hmm. Both Lehman Villenbrock and Buchheim survived the tours, and they both served as technical advisors for this film. Hmm. So they, they fully made it through the war. What we see at the ending of this film is imaginary, but it speaks to Buchheim's stance of this being an anti-war story. And finally, he does have a, a museum, the Buchheim Museum, also known as the Museum of Imagination in Germany. Hmm, interesting. Now, our screenplay is written by a man who really hasn't written a whole lot since now. It's Wolfgang Peterson. Okay. We're going to mention him a lot more later because he's the director of this film. Oh, okay. And he's gone on to do a lot more directing. Before this, he mostly just did short films, German scripts. But after this, he did write one more feature, The Never-Ending Story. That blows my mind. <laughs> and you've never seen it. I've never seen The Never-Ending Story. It's on the list, people. <laughs> you've seen this, but you haven't seen The Never-Ending Story. David is weird. <sighs> Whatever, you know. It's a great movie about a boat. Mm -hmm. What do we think of the writing of this movie? It's great. I mean, it is subtle. I do like that there's not like a bunch of extra dialogue. I like that they gave us just enough characters that like you learn a little bit about who they are, but not like we didn't spend like a crazy amount of time on that. Well, we did watch a three and a half hour movie. Like we didn't spend a lot of like busy time on that bullshit, which I liked. Yeah. You learned the right amount about each character that you need to know mm -hmm. for them to make an impact on you. Sure. So like Pilgrim, you don't need that much story from. Mm -hmm. You just need to know that he's basically a greaser. Mm -hmm. The German equivalent of one. And that he's going to poke people around because he's a little wild. Whereas you need a lot of time with the captain to learn about his temperament. And you need a lot of time to learn about the chief engineer and what he's going through because mm -hmm. it's really important to the story and how it impacts all the other characters. Some of it, I, I think, I'm going to be honest, has to come down to the novel. Mm -hmm. And we should say we're very interested now. There is a full series, a now television series of this. It's on Hulu. Um, mm -hmm. It's a Sky production, but it's it's like on its third season now. Mm -hmm. They've made this story into like 30 episodes of television. <laughs> so like there's a lot to draw from from the novel. And I, I will say, I think Peterson had a lot of really good source material to work from. Hmm. I mean, that's not saying anything bad about him as a writer so much as it's like he just hasn't really written a whole lot more than this. Mm hmm. 
So, like, I think he was probably going, look, we can just use the novel as the biggest basis, and then we'll figure out the filming side of it after. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it does that really amazing job of giving us just enough of what we need without boring us to tears before getting into the action. There's a right amount of tension, release, character moments, and then back into the tension again. And at a three and a half hour movie, you know, we stopped halfway through because we were just like, you know, needed it's three and a half hours. We don't have that much time to watch this, but we probably could have done it in one sitting. Hmm. It's that compelling a movie. Yeah, no, it is. It's just it's a really good story and it's presented well. Mm-hmm. I mean, despite despite my issues, it's presented well. The film was not without controversy. Because it's a movie about German soldiers where Mm -hmm. they're the heroes. When originally screened in Germany as a miniseries in 1985, the Germans criticized it for portraying Nazi fighters sympathetically. They do an interesting job of writing that line. The captain Mm -hmm. is very much not in favor of the Nazis. He, in fact, fully ridicules the one pro-Nazi on board. Yeah. And most of the guys are indifferent. They're just like, I'm here to serve my military pension and then get the fuck off this boat. <laughs> like, I'm here to do my job. That's it. So it's commented on. And I will say, like, they don't seem to be very pro the regime in this movie. <laughs> there was also a lot of talk about that the crewmen and officers were anti-Nazi, which went against the historic part of this. But I will also note that historians have pointed out Pro-Nazi officers were not brought into the U-boats until 1943, well after this story takes place. Early on in the war, they just took on soldiers who were soldiers Hmm. and didn't care about, you know, who held what sympathies where with the regime. They changed that later because there was flagging morale. So they brought in less experienced officers (laughs) to Hmm. run these boats, which caused them even more problems. At the L.A. Film Festival, no one was sure how the audience was going to react. I mean, they were terrified. They were going to show this for an American audience, a movie about German soldiers. Mm-hmm. How are they going to feel in a Hollywood audience? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's going to be nuts. Apparently, the audience applauded the opening caption, stating 30,000 of 40,000 German men went to war and submarines did not come back. Mm. Rough, but Okay. Okay. <laughs> I get it. I don't like it, but I, I don't get like it. it, but I do understand. I really do. I I get it. But by the end of the film, the audience gave a standing ovation. Hmm. There's glowing reviews from all sorts of critics because they all realized this is not a movie about the Nazis or Germany for that matter. It's a movie about men in an extraordinary situation trying to figure out how to survive and the war finally coming after them at the end. Hmm. Like, they realized this movie's bigger than just the narrative we've always looked at. It's a much bigger commentary on war. Um, so I think it, it, it really hit people in a huge way. Buchheim, however, didn't like the movie. Now, this could be partially because he brought a script to set ready for filming mm-hmm. that would have wound up at six hours long. <laughs> and Peterson yeah. was like, you're not allowed in this writer's room. Your story's good. We're going to make it a movie. Sure. He disparaged the film. I can kind of understand some sour grapes in that, you know, what originally got put out in theaters was way more of an action epic. You don't get a whole lot of character development in it. 
And, you know, he was like, it's just a giant action film. It's just, you know, for American audiences. And it missed the whole point of my book. However, that got rectified. Mm -hmm. And the movie that we see is very much not pro-war. I would not come out of this movie being like, yeah, war is cool. No, I don't think so. Curiously, he was particularly insulted after seeing the scene of a crew member dancing like a tropical girl to catcalls. Of course, he's imitating Josephine Baker from France because it's pre-war and they would have seen Josephine Baker. But he stated that no U-boat crew, the most disciplined of sailors, would ever behave in such a manner. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's true or not, but it just spoke to it's like these are all a bunch of dumb young kids in a boat like two. 200 feet under the ocean. Like, they're gonna be ridiculous. Yeah. I was reading statistics about, like, the original captains of these ships, and they were all, like, in their mid-20s. Like, you know, I'm sure the the basic crew were all, like, 18 or 19. Idiot kids. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So, I I doubt highly that they didn't cut a rug every once in a while. (laughs) But then again, you know, this guy was on the ships with people, so maybe he has a point. Now let's get into our directing. It's Wolfgang Peterson. Now you'll recognize a lot more of the movies that he's directed. Before this, he made mostly just German films or television, but after this, he directed The NeverEnding Story, Enemy Mine, Shattered, In the Line of Fire, Outbreak, Air Force One, The Perfect Storm, Troy, and Poseidon. Mm -hmm. He parlayed this into big-budget action epics. Uh, You can tell. It's, I mean, when we get to the the, the action shots when they're being shot at and they're shooting, it's awesome. The depth charge scenes are probably the first thing that makes such an impact on you watching this movie. That's what I remembered the first time, was like, you're underwater, you're having explosives blown up next to your ship to try to sink you, mm-hmm. and you can do nothing. <laughs> there is yeah. no way to defend the attacks that, that are coming nope. at them. I thought that was the coolest part of the, the movie. Then I saw them do the straight of Gibraltar scene again and went, oh, shit. Yeah, that was fucking nuts. And what's wild, what I think is so cool about his directing of this movie is he gets the feel of an epic war movie while being very close in. Like, the coolest shot in that Strait of Gibraltar scene, if you really look at it, there's not a lot going on on screen. Like, in each individual shot, there's not a lot going on. But the way he's envisioned the whole and how the cuts are going to go together, it feels so big. In terms of how it how it's actually being done, it's a very small movie. It's just that he's he's got the vision in his head mm-hmm. of how you put it all together to make it look like one big thing. Yeah. That's what I think is so cool. It's the constraint that led him to be so creative with his directing style. Mm. And, you know, the performance you, you have to speak to the fact that these performances are top notch. Yes. I'm sure these are all really great German actors. Mm-hmm. There's only a handful that we'll actually know and have a lot to talk about. But like, at the very least, what he was able to do was get everybody to buy into mm-hmm. what he's thinking here. And you can tell every single person in this movie is like, yeah, I'm on board for this. Oh, yeah. Everybody gets where he's going with it. And they're all selling it perfectly. So that's... <laughs> 
if his writing is really solid, his directing is phenomenal. Oh, it's yeah. out of the park good. Oh, it it I mean it's top it it is really top notch. And like those other movies, they're good movies. I don't think he ever made anything near as good as this. Mm-hmm. It is truly just on a scope that few action movies are able to approach of what he was able to put together. And you're just like, damn, dude. Of course, accuracy was incredibly important to the film. The cast was kept indoors throughout shooting, so they weren't kept in the sub, but they were kept indoors away from the sun because they wanted them to look as pale as a sub crew would look while being holed up at sea. Mm Mm-hmm. They also filmed exclusively in the conditions on the actual U-boat. Those quarters were typically no larger than a person's outstretched arms. Yeah. They expanded it a little bit for filming so they could maneuver. Sure. But honestly, not much larger. What you're seeing is how cramped it would have felt. They actually did one interior shot at one point removing a section of the model's wall. Mm -hmm. But when Peterson and cinematographer Joost Ficano saw it they actually felt it pulled away from the authenticity of the film and they never did that again Mm -hmm. they said nope we're gonna do it all interior because it it just it has the wrong feel that i mean i really do appreciate that commitment because you can feel it you do i feel like they probably could have made some concessions just for logistics but respect like i said it goes back to that buy-in as long as everyone's on board you really can't argue too much with it But everybody has to be on board. All of the scenes were shot in sequence. Why? So the beard growth would stay natural. Yeah, I believe that. Totally. It's weird, but it is like one of the most important visual features of the film. How much beard growth these guys have over time. Mm -hmm. It's a big part of how you know things are progressing in the film. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. In fact, when they had to do reshoots, they had to apply fake hair just so they could keep that continuity through scenes. Mm-hmm. So, and even the scene where the navigation officer uses a sextant for astronomical sight is accurate. He is rocking the sextant from side to side, which, if you aren't a sailor, is something you would not know that is done with a sextant in order to, to track signs. Yeah, well, the only reason I know that is because I learned it from Big Bang Theory. (laughs) Like, down to the smallest detail. Mm -hmm. The fact that you can see the bread loaves hanging in the rafters and the Mm -hmm. sausages and all that stuff. You're like, my God, man. They really, really went for it. And it's so cool. One part that is not authentic is that because the camera noise was bouncing off of the interiors of that subset, the movie was shot silent and they looped the dialogue. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be honest. I forgot that halfway through the movie. In fact, early on, there's like a handful of times where you maybe notice it, but they did a really good job. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you totally believe what's happening. Those shots, those interior sub shots where we get the alarm and we run through. Mm hmm. There were no steady cams for production of this film. Steady cams were not a widely usable film thing. We talked about them using it in Rocky, mm-hmm. but like that was the invention of a guy who was making the movie. It was not like the big deal it was. It is now. So how did Yost Vacano do that? Yeah. Um, to find out that those are not steady cams is wow. Okay. Yeah. How, how, please, I need a making of, please. Well, okay. 
I will say there's a ton of making of footage if you get the the Blu-ray versions of this film. So we we might have to go dig for it. But he created a system of weighted gyroscopes. He built these with his father. Mm -hmm. And those gyroscopes allowed him to keep the camera steady while he physically ran through the sub. Mm -hmm. So he had it set up and then he could angle it. He could tilt it. He could do whatever he wanted with it. But he had to move through. So they did allow a little bit of space in the sub so that he could move freely. But because he was running with that thing, he wore a helmet all the time on set. Because as he ran, he would regularly bump his head on the set. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense to me. <laughs> but yeah, all he did was like, well, we're just going to figure out a way to keep the camera steady. And then... I got to be the one to run with it. Mm -hmm. That's it. <laughs> it's fucking bonkers. Wow. You know, we talk about the direction here. Yost Vacano deserves like all the praise in the world for the camera work mm -hmm. in this movie. Yeah. Because there are shots that we just were like, what? <laughs> just the running through the ship stuff alone. That and the one that got me is when they finally level out the ship from the bottom of Gibraltar mm -hmm. and it's so subtle, but you can tell that they were all standing normal. He just tilted it just like 15 degrees mm -hmm. so that it would look like the boat was unlevel. And as the boat came to level, he just moved to the camera and you're like, fuck, dude, that's so good. That's all you have to do. I think probably the biggest thing is like he's finding relatively simple solutions for a huge impact. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so cool about his cinematography in this movie. Yes. Little details and little things he did made it from just a big action war movie into like a really compelling thing where you feel like you're in it. Yeah. Who could have been better? Mm. Because this was originally conceived as an American co-production. Mm -hmm. Edward R. Pressman was originally in talks with the German producers to make this an American movie with American movie stars. Mm -hmm. And the director they were thinking of was John Sturgis. John Sturgis's biggest credits include The Great Escape, The Magnificent Seven, Bad Day at Blackrock, and Gunfight at the OK Corral. Mm -hmm. Sturgis was like getting into a little bit of pre-production, but he had differences with the German creative team. He really didn't like that they wanted the script to really tie to the novel. Yeah. He wanted to, like, no, we should make it its own thing. So eventually he stepped away. He was just like, nah, this isn't my thing. But when he saw the final product, he had all the praise in the world for Peterson. He said, I would have never been able to conceive the claustrophobic nature of this movie. That mm -hmm. I, I would have just made a, a, a war movie and he had something way better in mind. Mm -hmm. So he's just like, I, all the praise in the world to him. He made something even better than any of us could have thought of. Yeah, that's amazing. Some of this is a lightning in a bottle thing. It's like this movie does not work if you do not have all of the right people and the right thought process and creative direction that's mm -hmm. going into it. Because if this is just a static shot submarine movie that we see out of an American studio, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It does not work as well. All right, let's talk about our cast. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a particularly hard one because it's all Germans, mm -hmm. right? 
But we do have a couple of really notable people, specifically one notable performer. That is Jürgen Prochnow playing Captain Lieutenant Heinrich Lehmann Villenbrock, or mm -hmm. Der Alte, the captain. Before this, Jürgen was in a lot of German films and TV, but based off of this performance, he got a lot of American movies. Mm -hmm. After this, he was in The Keep, 1984's Dune. He plays Lido Atreides. Hmm. Forbidden, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, Body of Evidence, Judge Dredd, The English Patient, Air Force One, The Replacement Killers, Wing Commander, House of the Dead, The Da Vinci Code, Beer Fest, 24 on television, and Hitman Agent 47. And he is still going strong, mostly in German movies now. Mm -hmm. But for a long time in action movies, he was the go-to German guy. Yeah, he's phenomenal. Oh my God, in this movie, his looks alone. Oh yeah. He's got those steely blue eyes already. But, you know, in every other movie, he, he's got the clean cut beard. So you mm -hmm. just have that jawline the whole time. Sure. And in this, that beard softens him so much where he really, you ignore that sort of steely jawed action star thing. Mm -hmm. And you just get this man who's having to calculate all of this stuff in his head. Yeah. And who is not a robot? Like, a lot of times this character is a robot in any other movie. Like, he's the stoic captain. But instead, what you get is you get the stoic captain who also you can see all of the emotions running underneath that. Mm -hmm. And that's what's really cool about his performance. Yeah. He's so good. And he's so interesting to watch. And it, it, I think the other thing, too, is it allows all the other characters... Because there are big characters in the movie to really shine because he's got that subtle stoicism to what he's doing. It's very good. Who could have been better? Mm. Rutger Hauer was offered the role. Oh, that makes sense to me. But he opted to appear in Blade Runner instead. Yeah, I understand. You know, now that I think about it, Rutger Hauer probably wouldn't have been as good a fit. He could have done it, but I like what we got here, so... I've never seen Rutger Hauer in a beard, so that's the thing that's throwing me. Yeah, there's that too. And who could have been better when this was still considered a U.S.-German joint project? Mm. Robert Redford and Paul Newman. Of course. Of course. I'm going to say this. Robert Redford could not do this. Not as well as Paul Newman. Yeah, I, I agree. Paul Newman would, would be a better stern, but still has a bit of softness to him guy. Robert Redford, no. He's too pretty for this role. He is. He just is. Newman has that ruggedness. I mean, what would be really cool about watching Newman in this role is that he has all that charisma. And Prochnow has a bunch of charisma. You can see it under the surface, but he has to hold that in because he has to be the captain of the ship. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's that current underneath. It is like, yeah, he's a charismatic, good looking, normal guy, but also... I'm in charge, and I have to stay in charge through a really tense fucking environment. So it would be it would be against type for Newman, which I think would be super cool to watch. Mm. The other actor that we will talk about of note, because he's a big deal, is Herbert Grönemeyer playing Lieutenant Werner, the correspondent. Mm. Now, he really hasn't done a whole lot of movies, but he is a very famous German rock singer. He is the first German to ever perform on MTV Unplugged Ooh. and performed the theme for the 2006 World Cup in Germany. Mm. So he's a big deal. Okay. 
He is also friends with Anton Corbin, the music video director and also movie director, which means that he has appeared in a couple of films, Control, the Joy Division movie made by Corbin. He's also been in A Most Wanted Man. He also composed Mm. the music for Corbin's film The American with George Clooney. Mm. What do we think of Gronemeyer in this movie? He's okay. Like, he's fine, but I actually feel like his performance is really weak compared to our captain. (sighs) I almost wonder if that miniseries version... One of the things I saw in the miniseries is that Werner's narration runs through it. Okay. From the novel. So I wonder if we wound up cutting a lot of it out and a lot of what we get with Werner is just the look of terror of dealing with all of this. Mm. Like you have to watch him go from like bright eyed, bushy tailed reporter dude into hardened war correspondent. And it's hard to fully get that. Some of that's in his performance. He's he feels green, I think, more than anything. Mm. Yeah, but like not in a good way. Yeah, it's hard. Like like you said, I think it's okay, maybe a little better than okay, but it's not as strong as so many of the other characters in the movie. Not that it needs to be as good, but it's just like, God, Jurgen's doing such an amazing job. I wish we had a counterpart that felt that amazing alongside of it. Hmm. And that's really it for the main cast. There's so many good actors. There's so many great characters, but we really don't have a whole lot of knowledge of them outside of German stuff, but we have some Arpons. Oh, Ervin Later, who played Johan, the wild and wacky engine room guy, the ghost, uh, he had a featured role alongside Bill Nye in Underworld. Oh, okay. Claude Olivier Rudolph as Ario, he is the other guy in the engine room, just like the mechanic guy that's in there with the mm-hmm. kind of longer hair. He appeared as Colonel Akakievich in The World Is Not Enough. He is one of the main henchmen at the tunnels. Rita Cadillac, playing Monique, the entertainer at the beginning of the film, she was a famous dancer at the Crazy Horse Saloon in Paris. Wow. Yeah. So she like she had a whole life before this, and then they brought her in to be like the older performer leader of the ladies there. Mm-hmm. Otto Sander playing Philip Thompson. He had a big role in Vim Vender's international hit, Wings of Desire. Mm-hmm. Uh, the real fun note here is that during that scene in the La Rochelle bar, this is the crazy other captain, he was actually drunk. <laughs> okay. He was full on really fucking drunk for that scene. <laughs> wow. Which it works for him. Part of me just wishes, I was like, God, I wish Thompson was also a second officer on that boat. Like, I understand why that doesn't work for the story we're telling, but what a great character for the 10 minutes we get of him. Mm -hmm. And finally, Sky Dumont, who is one of the officers aboard the Vaser, he played Sandor Savost in Eyes Wide Shut. He is hitting on Nicole Kidman and dancing with her while Tom is headed to the bathroom early on in the film. Okay. All right. As with our Oscar series every year, we are going to talk about the nominations for this mm-hmm. film, but we are not going to reveal the winners until the end of the series. This film was nominated for six Academy Awards, none of them Best International Feature. Really? Really. It was nominated for Best Sound Effects Editing, mm-hmm. Best Editing, Okay. Best Sound, uh-huh. Best Cinematography. Uh-huh. We're tracking with all of these. Sure. Best Adapted Screenplay for Wolfgang Peterson. Mm-hmm. 
and Best Director for Wolfgang Peterson. Wow. Yeah. It was the only film that year nominated for Best Director that did not get nominated for Best Picture. That is so bizarre. But I understand it. But at that time, it was the most Oscar nominations for a foreign language film ever. Mm -hmm. Every single one of those it deserves a nod for. They're all really good. (laughs) No, I completely agree. I'm just, I'm thinking a little bit about the best picture part of it, which I get almost like, okay, yeah. In a year like now with 10 movies, this would be a shoe in. Mm -hmm. You would say, well, look, we have a big budget action film that also has a shit ton of depth and nuance to it. Mm -hmm. Clearly it's, it fits in a 10 movie year, but this is five. There's only five movies that get in. And I yeah. think that's the problem with this year is there's only five movies. It's very easy to leave out the action film. <laughs> mm-hmm. But like for all intents and purposes, it could have been nominated for that seventh Oscar. It's that good and that big a deal of a movie. Yeah. Like I think that's the biggest thing about it is like it's not just that it was so technically amazing and so well written and directed. It's also that it made a huge impact in American box office. People went to go see this movie that never would have seen a foreign language film Mm -hmm. because it was just so well regarded. And some of it was the war movie dad thing. Like lots of people would be interested, but it clearly got people to the theater. We shall see where it lands on those nominations. And now we move on to some trivia. Mm -hmm. Though originally filmed in German, all of the principals in this film could speak English. Oh, wow. So when dubbing for U.S. and U.K. distribution, every single one of them dubbed their own voices. That's really cool. Like, I always get excited when I hear an American actor is able to dub their own voice in a different language. I I just love that stuff. So that's really cool. I I think it helped with the authenticity, too. Sure. People who would go see that dub would like, wow, it's really engrossing. It's like, yeah, because the actual actors were doing their own lines. (laughs) The only one who couldn't was Martin Semmelroga, who played the second lieutenant in this movie, our sort of comedic relief. However, he did dub himself for the 1997 director's cut version. Mm -hmm. While working on the director's cut for the film, the one we're watching, Wolfgang Peterson discovered that the original soundtrack had completely been disintegrated by film melt. Wow. Composer Klaus Doldinger had to archive the soundtrack and remix every single music cue for the film. Mm -hmm. So part of the reason that they redid the sound was they didn't have the original soundtrack to work from. Mm -hmm. The music editors then had to painstakingly recut all of the music sequences so that they could match the film and where it was supposed to hit in the Mm -hmm. new cut. Woof. (laughs) That's no good. No. But hey, they have it all preserved now. It's all good. We have every version of this ever made, and it's going to be stored away for the rest of time because it's an important fucking movie. Mm -hmm. Peterson actually supervised the director's cut at the same time as he was filming Air Force One. The new cut premiered just after Air Force One wrapped filming. Hmm. Okay. Busy man. (laughs) When the submarine left report at La Rochelle, all modern craft had to be evacuated and they used smoke to disguise all of the modern structures. Mm -hmm. For the depth charges, they detonated small explosives in a 16-foot tank, and then they cranked the frame rate of the film to 1,500 frames per second. The average film frame rate is 24 frames per second. 
the really cool part about that is that you do get that feeling of it being way deep underwater because explosions underwater work real different than explosions uh, on ground. Mm-hmm. That was something we had to you have to look at when you think about depth charges. It was like you're not trying to hit the boat. I mean, if you do, congratulations. Yeah. But depth charges were you set it to a certain distance below the water and then it explodes and it crushes the submarine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the whole idea. You're trying to breach the hull of the submarine so it takes on water. Mm-hmm. The, the fact that they cranked it up so high above what a normal film frame rate is is wild. <laughs> The only remaining Class 7C U-boat was not used in the film because it is a technical monument and memorial in Germany. You can actually visit the inside of U-995 in Labo, Germany. Hmm. And finally, most of the extras in the final La Rochelle sequence at the subpen were not German. They were French. Oh, okay. Peterson said that day the principal cast and crew felt the real fucking huge tension between them and the extras because they were all around long enough or their parents were around long enough to know about the occupation. Mm-hmm. Real tough go there. Wow. <laughs> Making a movie about Nazis and you're going to film it in France. Wowzers. Yeah. However, per Peterson, they all committed to the performance and they gave their absolute best effort during that air raid sequence. Mm-hmm. So he said, to a person, they were all really professional. It was just real fucking tense on set. Yeah. Because he got French people dressed as Nazis. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> it's fucking heavy. To tie it all up, though, like that heaviness is what makes this movie so fascinating to watch. Mm-hmm. Like Other movies would buckle under that, and we would just ask questions. We talked a little bit about this with some recent movies yeah. where they don't deal with the big giant issue at hand this one rises to that perfectly and that's what makes it so compelling that leads us to ratings Mm -hmm. and for every film we have a specific ratings system for this movie hmm depth charges depth charges are just kind of the big signifier Mm -hmm. this is my movie i've seen it before Mm mm-hmm Part of me doesn't want to give it a five only because I think, well, maybe there's some issues. And I'm like, I see no issues with this movie. For me, it's five depth charges. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that it's like a groundbreaking movie, except from a technical standpoint. But it's just so compelling. And it does what it's trying to do so well. Like, there's no other movie that can live up to the amount of precision and thoughtfulness and storytelling this movie tried to do Mm -hmm. i've seen lots of submarine movies and none of them approach what this movie pulls off my gut reaction is five depth charges i'm gonna go with four Mm -hmm. mostly because of the missing connective tissue for some of that like i have no idea what's actually going on problems and and yeah i i understand that could be but the film that as it was presented to me doesn't have that and I that would have heightened my ability to enjoy it and I did enjoy it a lot it's a really good movie so it's a four it's a four for me it's a fantastic watch Mm -hmm. unfortunately it's not streaming right now but wait around for a while it'll come out or if you still have cable and you're one of those people it shows on cable all the time (laughs) well we've already started in on this series let's make a real hard left turn 
Let's go from big war epic to tiny movie about dudes in the 50s. Okay. We are watching Barry Levinson's Introduction to America with Diner. Okay. I've heard a lot about this movie. Mm -hmm. I've heard a lot about how this is like one of those quintessential guys coming of age movies. Mm -hmm. And I've never seen it. And I do like Barry Levinson. We've been on record. We're pretty good fans. Yeah. So I'm curious about this one. Sure. It's got some fun people in it. Yeah. It's apparently got some fun writing. And it's going to be a little nostalgia trip. Yeah, it's one of those ones I've heard so much about, but I've just never seen. So it'll be interesting. Until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.